Psalm 16, a psalm of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, together with the psalmist, we say, you are our chosen portion and our cup. And you do hold our lot. And God, it's so good to be with the people of God right now. I thank you for these saints. Lord, I love them and you love them. And we're hungry and we need food from you. So Lord, would you feed your sheep? Would you cause us to be able to like David to go from crying out, preserve me, O God, to being able to say, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. God set eternity before us. Show us the way to heaven. In Christ's name and for his glory, amen. I am hopelessly lost, and I will always get hopelessly lost left to my own devices. And I mean, like, literally. Uh, I never have a clue where I'm going. I'm, I'm directionally challenged, to put it lightly. Uh, I googled that phrase, and there's some people who want to diagnose this. I'm not saying I'm jumping in there, but they wanted to term it geographical dyslexia. Um, I, I, I never have a clue where I'm going. I'll point, if I'm in a building, if I'm in, my only hope for knowing north and south is like luckily living in Carpinteria, the mountains can be seen from everywhere. I'm like, okay, north and never eat soggy Wheaties. So I figure, I think once I'm in a building, I'm donezo. It's a dead zone for a compass. I don't, I couldn't write, it would take me a while right now to tell you which direction the ocean is. Um, one time as a kid, I went to the job site with my dad, and 
it was, <laughs> it was in the same city I grew up in. Uh, and my dad's a contractor. And he gave me 10 bucks and he said, hey, go get us some sodas from the corner store. And so there was a 7-Eleven, like two blocks from the left uh, from where we were working. Uh, so I went out the house and I turned right and I walked for like 20 minutes until I just found a store and I bought some sodas there. And as I was walking out of the store as a kid, I stopped once I got out the doors and realized I have no idea how to get back from where I was going. And I just started to cry. <laughs> and the store owners are like, what's wrong? Are you okay? And uh, I was like, I'm lost. I don't know where I am. And we ended up calling the police and they got us reunited eventually. <laughs> Guys, I wish I could say like, that was a one-time thing, but before, <laughs> before maps, before maps and Google Maps in high school, I was utterly at the mercy of this ancient technology we called MapQuest, if you remember that, and the printouts from it, um, or my own hand-scrawled notes from, uh, from the computer screen to get to my best friend's house, like my best friend whose house I went to all the time. I had to carry them with me. Um, and then there was a time when I was a junior in college, and what really pushed me eventually to get a smartphone, but I was living in San Francisco. And uh, I'll pick out one of the times in San Francisco where uh, I went to interview to intern at Reality SF, and I was really hoping to get it. And so I did the interview, I took the bus there, and then uh, I walk out the building, and I'm just like emotionally spent. I try to put my all out there, try to get this internship, and... I was just like, oh, I just got to go home at this point. So I just got on the same bus that I came from, um, and uh, I got on the same exact bus that I took there, and it took me about 35 minutes until I was in Hunter's Point, um, like the worst part of the city, where I realized I should have taken the bus probably going the other way to get back to where I was. <laughs> So I ran, <laughs> I talked to the bus driver, and he's like, you probably don't want to get off here. And I was like, yeah. So I just rode the entire route. Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> so uh, what's true of me directionally is actually true of all of us spiritually. And as we walk this life, left to our own devices, we, we have no clue what to do. But the great hope of Psalm 16 is we, the people of God, can trust God to preserve us and ultimately to bring us into his presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at his right hand. The question is, how do we get from here to there? Well, we must know God as he's been revealed to us in Psalm 16. And so the way we're going to walk through Psalm 16 today is we have three signposts, as they were, to guide us along the way. And their names are God our refuge, God our portion, and God, our joy. So let's start where the psalmist starts at verse 1 and see the signpost called God, our refuge. 
Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, we don't know why exactly David is crying out these words. Was it Goliath? Was it Saul? Was it later in his life? Was it Absalom? We don't know. The psalm itself doesn't tell us. But we do know this. David cried out to God for help and strength and preservation. He's crying out. He's saying, God, I need more than a cathartic experience to well up from within myself. I need a strength and a keeping that comes from outside of me. That's the only time you start to really cry out for help. And a great commentator on the Psalms, a man named William Plummer, he said this, anything is good for us if it leads us to hearty, believing prayer. And so wherever you find yourself despairing in danger of losing hope about to give up, it will actually work for your good if you allow it to drive you to turn in hearty, believing prayer. And that can sound like a hard statement. But what I'm talking about is not not the ability to get up and go run a marathon, but at the end of yourself to simply cry out to a God who could show you grace and mercy and give you strength from outside yourself. And so hear the prayer of David. His words are Godward, desperate. He says, you God, you must preserve me for you are my refuge. All I am is one who has no hope without you. All I am is one that needs protecting. God, you're my refuge. You're my safety. You're my strong tower. It just comes out from the circumstances of life that he says, preserve me, help me. I need refuge in you. I need protection. And that crying out is built on a foundation. The foundation of his cry for preservation is shown to us in verse 2. He just blurts out what he needs. And then we see why he would say that. He says this, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. We see a parallelism. Something in poetry that can do what logical prose just can't in, this, in the uh, number of lines it takes in poetry. So what David does here is he is declaring the truth. You are my Lord. And then he exposes in the next parallel line what the depth of that truth is. We thought we knew what it means that God is our Lord. But in David's next line, he takes it deeper than we would have ever thought it actually goes. It says, the Lord, Yahweh, he is my Lord, my master, my God. Secondly, he says, I have no good. I have no good apart from Yahweh. He says, I say to you, Yahweh. Let's remember what Yahweh means, what it means when the Bible 
puts LORD in all caps. It refers to the personal name of God, something precious, something holy, something that the Hebrews who would copy the scrolls didn't want to take God's name in vain. And so they wouldn't put Yahweh, they would put a substitute word for it. So they would never try to use the Lord's name in vain. In Exodus 3, it's where God reveals his personal name and who he is to Moses. We see that account in verses 13 and 14 of Exodus 3. Moses, as he's approached a burning bush that is not consumed, is speaking with God, and God tells him, you're going to take my people out of the land of Egypt. And Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am sent you. Yahweh, the one who created the ends of the earth, who spoke galaxies into being, the one for whom time is a construct the eternal, before Abraham was, or you, or I, ever were, Yahweh always has been, is, and ever shall be. Our minds cannot fully grasp the eternity. We can't fully lay hold of the perfection he is. Never was a time he was not. The one who is self-existent, eternal, the author of all life, he is our Lord and our master and our provider. And so David says, Yahweh, you are my Lord. He fills his heart with the truth of who God is. And therefore, because all that is comes from him, we have no good apart from him. So often we say, God, Lord, Jesus, Father, in our prayers, and we never truly fathom what we're saying when we say, the God who is, is my Lord. David says the parallel truth of that is that I have nothing good apart from him. None. No good. It is to say that all my good comes from him. All of your good comes from God. You have nothing to offer him. He is dependent upon you for nothing. But he is kind and he is good. And so every good thing we could look at in our lives, it has come from him. And it is to say also that with him and nothing else, if we had him and nothing else, we would be rich. And if we had everything else, but not him, we would be the most poor, the most to be pitied. 
because gifts apart from him are meaningless because all their goodness is from him. Do you realize that every good gift we have is meant to be a window, a portal to which we are able to worship the God who gave that gift? So food, sushi, los agaves, prosciutto is meant to be a highway that makes us ponder, think over the fact that God didn't have to make food taste so good. Do you realize that? Like if I was thinking up all the animals and I thought up a pig, I would not think that if you take the leg of this thing, I'm sorry if this is graphic for you, but if you take the leg of this and you cure it with salt and you let it stay in a humid spot, you're going to yield prosciutto. You're going to yield something utterly delicious. That every good taste, every color of a flower, every smell that is delightful comes from the mind of Yahweh. That friendship, romance, family, are their strong bonds and longings to be connected that are meant to make us be in awe and wonder at the one who truly is and always has been Father. God isn't Father because we have families. We have families and come into this earth only by virtue of a mother and father because it tells a story of who God is. It reflects in a way the truth of who he is. Marriage is a picture of the great covenantal love that God actually has. Fatherhood is a picture of the one who always has been father, son, and spirit. These gifts are meant to be highways to make us awe wonder, and worship. And they never find their meaning and fulfillment without him. That the eternal creator of the cosmos, the one who has all wisdom, power, and authority, is our master, the one who watches over us, the one we labor for, we work for, the one who has adopted us into his family, that is of infinite value. Because Yahweh is our Lord, we take refuge in him. What better refuge is there? Because Yahweh is our Lord, we have no good apart from him. Because from him is all goodness. Because Yahweh is our Lord, we also delight in the company of saints. And not those who run after other gods. It's a natural outflow for David as he's cried out for preservation to God and said, you are my only good, his eyes and heart then turns to the fellow saints in the land. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Do you love to be with the people of God. I love being with you right now. 
To be with the people of God reminds us that in an insane, fallen world, God has shown grace. And our hearts are strengthened. We can get through today, and tomorrow he's going to give us mercy. But we do it as a family together. We were saved into a family, not just as individuals. David finds in his time of trouble, other than God, next closest to his heart are the brethren, the people of God. This is a foreign theme for so many of us. This is, this is patently un-American. If it's not my blood, well, they're great, and yeah, I go to the thing with them. But next closest to David's heart, other than God, is the people of God. I know personally the power of friends in my life to encourage me, to say, don't give up hope. Keep going. God is faithful. He has always shown himself to be faithful. I know of coming to men's group and in my darkest days with no hope, an older saint telling me of the grace that has found him uh, he used to be strung out on cocaine. And his marriage was a wreck. And God found him. And God forgave him. And it gave me strength. A gift from God that gave me strength to keep going. And if you're going to make it in life, your delight must be, hear how crazy of a command this is. Your delight must be in being with the people of God. You must Love the people of God. First John tells us, if you don't have love for the people of God, you need to examine your heart to see if you be in the faith. So find joy in being with those who have found their greatest joy in God. And on the other side of the coin, you have those who run after another God who are willing to sacrifice and compromise and take the name of other gods on their lips. Most likely, David here is referring to fellow Israelites who have gone after other gods of the land, gods that could never save, but they're doing crazy things. They're doing uh, blood offerings. They're taking the names of gods other than Yahweh on their lips and crying out to them. And he hates it. He says, no. I will not do that. I will not compromise. I will not sacrifice to another God. Brothers and sisters, you need to know if you're going to make it faithfully to the end, your closest companions, the ones in whom you delight, they cannot be those who hate God. Psalm 1 warns us of fellowship with those who do not delight in God. The truth is we can only have deepest fellowship with those who have God as their treasure. And don't misunderstand me what we said last week about mission, about relationships with people in the world. It still absolutely holds true. Of course, we need friendships and relationships with unbelievers. But for sustaining power and influence on our lives, we need to be with the people of God. So often, I think, 
read an article that put it well this week that we've taken the truth that going to church does not make one a Christian and we've switched it to you don't have to go to church if you're a Christian. Which is a rather unthinkable thing to the psalmist. And I'm not putting up 101 laws of go to church and do this and do that. I'm saying is your delight in being with the people of God. When you miss, do you long to be back with them to hear his word, to sing together? As for the saints in the land, my delight is in them. I love being with the people of God. And hear this warning and this plea. If you are running after other gods, be they money or sex or power or fame, it will only lead to sorrows. So come to Jesus. Come to him and find your sorrows wash away. He's our refuge. He's our Lord. His people are our people. And next we see that he is our portion. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. We see a few things from the fact that God is our portion. First, we see because God is our portion, we can have contentment. This plus nothing equals contentment because God is our portion. So often we find ourselves in times of trial, it can seem that if only I could have that, that thing that's just beyond my grasp, that thing that God could make happen. If I could have that, I could be content. I could have rest in my soul. If I could have a spouse, if I could have a baby, if I could have a better job, if I could have health, a car, believing children, a better marriage, good things. If I could have those things, I would find rest for my soul. David says, God is what I would choose. He's my portion and my cup. Portion has behind it the idea of land. Where God apportioned the 12 tribes uh, of Israel, different plots of land, his dwelling place. David says, God is my dwelling place. God is my portion. And cup, it has the idea of blessing. We know this from Psalm 23. Surely my cup overflows, reflecting the goodness and blessings of God. Because God is my portion and my cup. He himself is my blessing. We can have contentment. You see, the flip side of I have no good apart from you is in you, God, I have all my good. Secondly, because God is our portion, we can trust his care and control. You hold my lot. The word for lot here can mean either a, either a plot of land, we're familiar with that usage, or like a device to cast. You're familiar with the term casting lots. Something like the Urim and Thummim in the Old Testament that would uh, be cast to make a decision that showed God's will. 
David's saying something along the lines of, you hold, you hold my dwelling place, you hold my future, you're the one in control of it all. And so we understand that idea, but look here at the turn from just declarations of who God is, his chosen portion, his cup, to personal trust in his sovereign care. He says, he stops, he stops just saying things that are true about God. God is the portion, God is refuge, God is cup. And he speaks to God, the second person. He says, you hold my life. And if we are ever to experience the kind of contentment and grace that God would have for us, we need to not just know these truths, but we need to lay hold of them ourselves and say, yes, not only are you sovereign, not only are you good, you are sovereign over my life right now. You are good to me right now. I remember in the darkest days that I've walked through so far, there was a, there was a verse in the Psalms that bugged me because it said uh, that God, in God's book, every day of my life was written already. And I remember being with somebody. It was Bo. You can't tell him to his face, okay? Um, and I said, like, here's my thing. All of my days, I would have never picked this. This sucked. I hate this. I can't even see how God is good in this right now. Does all of my day, it really God, God wrote all of my days. And a fellow saint in whom is all my delight opened up the Bible and simply read this. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Case settled. <laughs> we can trust in his care and control. All of our days are written in his book of life. Don't be mistaken. This is no call for stoicism. Look at the first line of this psalm. Preserve me. Read David's other psalms. Tears have been my food day and night. But if you are to experience peace and the grace of God, you have to lay a hold personally of God's sovereign care and control over your life. We say, Yahweh, you are my good. You are enough for me. You are my treasure. And I trust you with everything. You hold my life. This is, this is true wisdom. William Plummer says this in practical remarks on this verse. In many things, the righteous is wise. The righteous person puts truth before error, eternity before time, saints before sinners, the spirit before the flesh, but the height of his wisdom in his is in his preferring God's will to his own. God's favor 
to that of all creatures and God himself to the universe beside. Here, eternity comes into view. Verse six, David is speaking of his current law in life. He's had to shout out, preserve me, O God, and yet is able, after thinking on who God is, to say, not a few breaths later, I'm in a good place. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And if this was written during any one of the three times that I could think of where he's about to lose his life, others would surely be saying, David, if you die, you'll have no inheritance. If you don't take this, you'll have nothing. If you don't do something, then what's going to happen? But David's knowledge of his inheritance goes far past these 60, 70, 80 years. I have a beautiful inheritance. Thirdly, because God is our portion, we look to him for counsel. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. God's portion, that is his sufficiency, the fact that he is enough for us, is closely linked to his counsel in his word. Psalm 1, which we've already mentioned, uh, tells us the blessed man is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Psalm 19 says God's word is more valuable than Jeff Bezos' portfolio, than all the riches in the world, than Berkshire Hathaway stock. I'd rather have that. David says, even in the night, my heart instructs me. Now, how is that, how is that possible? Well, he says in another place, in Psalm 119.11, that he stores up God's word in his heart that he may not sin against God. And so it's there on reserve forming pathways in his whole being to think and know who God is. And then in verse 8, he gives us the true key to his confidence. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Because God is our portion, we set him before us. How does David set the Lord before him? This entire psalm is an example of him doing it. First, he cries out to God in prayer. Preserve me. Secondly, he listens to the Lord's counsel. Thirdly, he preaches to his own heart. Fourthly, he delights in being with God's people. Fifthly, he puts his eyes on eternity. And we could go on, but here are instructions for us. Here are things we can do in whatever trials we are facing, in whatever situation we find ourselves. We can cry out to God in prayer. We can listen to the Lord's counsel. We can preach to our own hearts. Do what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls taking ourselves in hand. And saying, look, God is in control, Travis. Don't fret. Don't be anxious. We can delight in being with God's people. We 
can put before our eyes and our hearts eternity. And suddenly, perspective on things starts to change. And what was once so crucial becomes negotiable. And what was negotiable, we say, I will never compromise on that. He's found God is his refuge. God is his portion. And lastly, we see that God is David's and our joy. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Here, David's prayer breaks forth finally in emotion and feeling and cathartic joy. Therefore, he says, because of all that's come before it, because God is my refuge, because Yahweh is my Lord, because his people are my people, because he's my chosen portion and my cup, because you hold my lot, because he gives me counsel, because I've set him before me, and as surely as he is the unmovable mover, I'll not be moved. Therefore, because of all he is and has done for me and ever will do, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Here's the truly biblical pattern. True worship follows true knowledge of who God is. The mind that is filled with the truth of who God is bursts eventually over into joy and gladness and worship. The one who lays a hold of what is true of God has to give way to worship because as we see him as he is, we can't help but sing. As we see him as he is, we can't help but trust him. But how can we be utterly convinced? How can we be sure his joy gives way to this? How can we be sure that this is true? Well, David in his joy, he... He gives way to speaking something greater than he probably even knew he was saying. He speaks truth, but I don't know if he knew the fullness of what he was saying. You see, these verses 9 through 11, Peter and Paul take and preach to those who are in sin. And he says, what David here said Christ has fulfilled and Christ has done. We'll just look at Peter's words in Acts 2 in his Pentecost sermon. After quoting verses 9 through 11, he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
How is it, he said, you will not let your Holy One see corruption? Surely he knew he would die. Surely he knew his body would rot in the ground. Peter tells us what's going on. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, the Greek word for Sheol. Nor did his flesh, flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. You see, what David knew in part, we know in full. David knew that his body would decay and he would see death. But he believed God. And his promise that one from his line would reign forever. And so we, the people of God, can be utterly sure that God will preserve us. He will not abandon our souls to Sheol. He will not let us ultimately see corruption because Christ died in our place and he rose from the dead, the Holy One of God. We who have trusted in him and are united to him, we know that whatever befalls us on this earth, we will be resurrected with him when he comes again. Therefore, we can cry out, preserve me, God, and be utterly assured that by the grace of God, through faith in Christ, you have had the path of life made known to you. And the path of life is this, believe in the Son of God. Believe in Christ. And though you go to sleep, you will never truly die. Though you have sinned, your sins will be washed as white as snow. You know in his presence there is fullness of joy. Because his spirit has been richly poured out in one day, we will fully be with him. You know that when he makes all things new, And we are at his right hand. God dwelling with man in the new heavens and the new earth. There shall be pleasures unending, unceasing forevermore. So church, our long-term future is incredibly bright. Set the Lord before you always. Onward and upward. Don't lose heart. Find delight in being with the saints. Spread this news abroad. In Christ, we do have the victory. Set your heart on heaven. Away with temporal fixes. John Wesley said this. I want to know one thing. The way to heaven How to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this end he came from heaven. He hath written written 
I love that word hath, but it trips me up sometimes. He hath written it in a book. Give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. And so church, where we are together, where you are in your own life, let us set eternity before our hearts. Let it give way to gladness in heart, to utter assurance that he holds our lot. Let us look forward to the day where we will be with him and in his presence and full of joy. And until then and until that day, his grace for us today is sufficient. Tomorrow he will give us new mercies. Let's pray. We praise you, Father, because you did not let your Holy One see corruption. Because in Christ we do have the victory. Because as, as surely as Christ rose from the dead, we who have been united to him in faith by your sheer grace will see him face to face, will dwell eternally. And so God, please, in the places we've turned to temporal fixes, in the places we've turned to other refuges, in the places where we've said, my portion would be full if only I had that, would we repent? And would it give way to times of refreshment? Would it give way to fullness of joy? Your promises are true. Your word endures. We will see you one day face to face. Let us be your ambassadors and your witnesses until that day. Thank you for the joy that was set before you. You endured the cross. We love you, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.